Welcome to the Hiraith Magazine Podcast. I'm Sarah Bringhurst Familia, coming to you from Amsterdam. Hiraith is a Welsh word meaning nostalgia for a home that no longer exists or never was. On the podcast, we explore the question, what is home? Whether we move for love, work, refuge, or adventure, many of us are trying to make ourselves at home far away from the place where we were born. So join us on this journey as we travel around the world in search of home. I speak with Rowena Dring, a fine artist who works in some unique ways. Her art incorporates the traditional women's work of sewing and needlework with large-scale painting. She has recently put some of these same techniques to work, making wonderful quirky face masks. And she also bakes sourdough bread. I want to talk to her about why we are drawn to these types of homemaking arts during a pandemic and what they can do for us. I am here with Rowena Dring, who has been part of Hiraith Magazine since the beginning. She is an artist who lives in Amsterdam. And like many of us, Rowena has been doing a lot of baking these days during coronavirus lockdown. However, unlike many of us, Rowena has been baking sourdough bread for many years. So we thought it would be fun to pick her brain about the baking craze, and maybe she'll even share some tips with us on turning out the perfect loaves. So welcome, Rowena. Hi, Sarah. Yeah, I'm not sure my loaves are always perfect, but um, it's always a work in process. So to start off, because uh, this is the Hirai thing that we do, why don't you tell me about where you're from and your family background and also a little bit about where you lived growing up? Um, I am originally from England and um, I had a very English um, background growing up in the south of the country. Uh, when I was 15, I started traveling around Europe and discovering uh, Eurolines, the cheap coach travel. And it was quite clear quite early on that I was never going to settle in England after, after my first uh, summer spent in Italy. And um, I moved to... Um, I settled in the Netherlands in 2004, I think, uh, although I'd had a long relationship with the city um, from around 1995 and had lived between London and Amsterdam. So you are definitely, we can consider you a local here in Amsterdam. I am. I'm not going anywhere else unless uh, unless uh, the economy pushes me away. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> so, no, I do consider myself a, a an economic migrant here. Um, the decision to settle in Amsterdam, at, apart from at the time I had a Dutch partner, uh, our decision was that um, life was much better as an artist and an architect in Amsterdam than London. And that in London at the time, I was always working two jobs to even just be able to exist as an artist. And in Amsterdam, I was able to 
um, just just work at my work. Well, that's wonderful that Amsterdam could give you that kind of home. So would you actually would you say that Amsterdam feels like home now? Ah, that's a tricky question. Um, it's really difficult. I don't, we, I mean, although I've been here a long time, like since uh, 1995, I'm only registered here as um, this became my decision, like my full-time base from 2004. Um, although I was here um, a lot of the time like in the years before that, I had a studio here from 2001. Um but um yeah we 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 also had a sort of a detour to france for a number of years uh with the last recession um so uh, i'm kind of hesitating answering it because my partner is irish and every christmas we go back to ireland and we spend 3 weeks there and it's always wonderful and going back this year was uh, people would ask me, uh, you know, you're uh, you staying here or you're away for the holidays. And it was the first year that I actually found myself saying that um, that I was going home, which means that now, um, after a very long time, after 17 years, the west coast of Ireland feels it is my home place uh, where my uh, Irish family live. So that was that was strange. That was a strange one to find myself saying that. And it was also very nice. That's great to have maybe more than one home. Yeah, home's where your family is and where your friends are. So, Yeah, definitely. So I wanted to talk a little bit also, since you are an artist, about your work. And your art employs some techniques that are traditionally associated with homemaking arts or women's work. So can you describe some of these techniques and what originally drew you to them? Um, the techniques I use are applique and embroidery, and I repurpose them as tools for painting. Um, I grew up and I studied painting um, up to master's degree, and um, but I also grew up around women who sewed, women who made things, women who fixed and repaired everything. Um, my mother, my grandmothers, my neighbours. So um, all part of having been born in the 70s, early 70s, um, by the way, because in in the 70s, clothes and everything were way more expensive before uh, globalisation. Um, so people made their own clothes or, you know, there was a dress you liked, you found a way of copying it if you were good at sewing. So, um, and I grew up among women who were very good at doing that. Um, so I learned, I learned the two languages alongside each other, painting and sewing. Uh, when I was studying my, on my master's degree, it was, um, it was a very short period after my father had died and I'd inherited, um, and my grandmother had died the year before and I'd inherited a sewing machine from her. And... The discussions at the time in college were all around the futil well, futility, the death of painting. Um, and the conversations that were happening about painting didn't have any relevance to me at that time. And I had the idea that um, 
I could swap paint for stitching in a way of kind of exchanging the values and make paintings with sewing. Um, and the type of paintings I made were these very masculine, big landscapes, large scale. So it was putting craft, handcraft, women's work on this very big um, uh, male, traditional male um, area of painting. And, um, but along, you know, painting, when you make art, it's always like there are so many different things involved. Um, uh, what I was, with my applique works, what I'm making are collages where you take, um, you take a whole, you take the whole image and you break it down into little colours and you fraction everything apart and then you piece it back together. And sort of, I think why this came around when my father had died, because when, uh, when you feel like your world has been shattered apart, actually working with collage, putting things together, uh, and with sewing, stitching, putting things back together. It's a way of um, reordering your world. And um, and it, it was a great comfort and something so, and something that just really uh, worked for me. So 20, 30 years later, I'm still doing it. I love that idea of reordering your world and also this thought that you learned sewing at a time when it was a necessary thing. It was a response to things that were going on in the world that made it necessary. And that kind of made me think of your, what is kind of your newest little project, which is bringing those techniques of sewing and embroidery into a whole new sphere as part of combating the coronavirus. So do you want to tell us about your masks? Oh, well, along with the rest of the world, um, I was watching what was happening in, in China in January and becoming sort of very, obviously very concerned and reading a lot and researching um, ways of preventing the spread of the virus, um, obviously masks being one of these things. I realized that there was going to be a, that I needed my kids to be at home. So if the schools hadn't have closed, I was going to keep them home. Um, and I bought a couple of sewing machines home and my materials. Um, the masks I'd started researching a couple of months before and found a pattern. And once... Once the kids were had finished school, so that, uh, as with everyone, our lives totally turned upside down, and we struggled to um, get log into school websites and get the kids doing their doing their schoolwork and keeping on top of everything. I found that making masks with funny faces on was a way of keeping myself sane. <laughs> so. Um, that, that's what happened. I started doing it and it worked, it worked for me and, um, other people seem to like it and also found them amusing. So, um, it's a whole new, um, a whole new branch of work for me, but it's still, it's drawing with stitching and that, um, uh, slightly a lot more sort of humorous than, uh, 
the work I'm known for. I think humor is a very appropriate response to a crisis. But I have to say, like the applique works I was making, I actually thought it was really funny, especially given the um, the atmosphere at the time uh, it, when I started making them in like nineteen ninety. When was it? Nineteen ninety seven. Um, sewing, homecraft, everything. It was so looked down upon at, at that time. So it was really a way of like playing up to it, and some people got really angry about it or um, very dismissive but then because these things were just so big I think like the largest one I made was four and a half meters long it's like you can't you couldn't kind of quite dismiss it in the same way (laughs) so well that's great so maybe maybe there's a thread connecting them all anyway so another another sort of homemaking art that you've been practicing for a very long time is making sourdough bread. So can you tell us how you first got into sourdough and, and why? Oh, um, actually the, um, yeah, down to a friend, Rhiannon, and um, she bakes the most beautiful bread. And I'd been around to her house one evening. She'd um, after school and we had a cup of tea and I had a slice of her bread and it was just the most amazing bread I'd eaten for a long time um, I really like sourdough breads when the, when we were living in France it was the you know the main bread that I ate um, and Rhiannon gave me some of her starter and pointed me towards the books and gave me some advice and I fed the starter for about five months without actually doing anything with it terrified reading the books and then eventually I um eventually I I um had a go uh up until then I had been making bread uh pizza dough and all the rest of it just with a dried yeast but um get getting getting into doing the sourdough was uh was fantastic um it's expensive to buy sourdough in Amsterdam and I have kids with um, allergies. I have a partner who doesn't really do very well on fa- any factory food. So I like, to, I like to cook from scratch as much as possible as um, it suits everybody better. And um, so it's always part sort of um, economy. It's like I reckon I now spend about four euros a week on bread instead of like 12, 14 more if you add pizzas in um so um the the economy of it is a big part as well but um but it's also kind of fits with being like that 70s child where one makes and does and fixes and all the rest of it (laughs) (laughs) but I also love this thing about like if you if you um it's kind of like a survivalist thing as well it's just like if you have a bag of flour and some water is just like if you can make bread from that you can you know you can do anything and like if you if you can if you can eat bread and cheese you can live very well and I think some of the best meals are homemade bread and some really good cheese so it is it is kind of a sort of magic but I think it it has been out of fashion a little bit since the 1970s maybe but do you have any thoughts on what is drawing people towards these types of homemaking arts like bread baking or sewing during a global pandemic? Um, there's definitely a comfort in it. Um, 
And it's a way, again, maybe a way of ordering your life with the current pandemic. It's like, I, it's difficult. I mean, I, I do find it difficult to find bread that I like anyway. There's only a couple of bakers, but they're a long way from my house. And um, I, I certainly wouldn't be cycling out every day to get fresh bread. Um, so I think like maybe for some people, it's the fact of not wanting to go out the house um, or actually just being at home and having the time to do it. Um, I reckon my sourdough loaf, it takes me about 17 minutes a day because I do a non I just do the stretching technique. I don't do the long need, kneading techniques or anything. So, you know, apart from the fact you need to kind of look at it occasionally and then throw it in the oven and put a timer on, it really doesn't take me very long to do it. And it fits in with, um, like, the rhythm of the day. Normally I bake on a Wednesday and then a Saturday or I prep stuff up the night before and then bake it and leave it to rise in the fridge and, like, bake it first thing in the morning. So... Um, I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, you've started baking sourdough. What? What? What was? Uh, what? How? What's your answer to your own question? <laughs> I think for me it was more herd behavior. I saw these people doing it, and I thought, oh, I've always kind of wanted to do that. But I think actually a big part of it for me was the time. Not so much that I didn't have time before, but I didn't have the time at home. So now I'm home for long stretches. If it's not done rising quite yet, I can just put it back and see it again in an hour, whereas before I didn't really have that. So I think that's part of it for me. As you kind of get to know it more as well, you'll know to, like, you start your ferment and then you can leave it in the fridge over the night to proof and then cook it first thing in the morning. So you don't actually have to, like, look at it or anything. I am hoping to someday achieve that level. <laughs> So speaking of that, though, what are your kind of top tips for beginners on getting bread to turn out nicely? Go for it. Just try it. Just do it. Um, just start with it because it's going to take you, like, I think, about three. I mean, it'll take you like quite a number of times to um, before you can get a really good loaf every time. So bake a lot of bread. If you're baking too much that you can't eat it, give a loaf to your neighbor. They will love you forever for it. Um, you know, share it, do it as much as you can. Um, so I, I think like not making the, so I like a, I like a bread that's got lots of big air bubbles in it. Um, cause I love the way that the butter just like drips down through those holes. Or, you know, when you spread it on, you get those, like, thick, thick yellow wells in it. Um, but for that, you need, like, quite a high hydration. So you need, like, you mainly get them if you put, like, 80% water to the flour. So when you start off, like, a, you know, less water is better. It's just easier to handle the bread and easier to handle the dough. The more, the wetter it is, the harder it, the harder it is. Although you do get lovely bubbles. Oh, all of it seems so mysterious, but so tantalizing to me. So another challenge that beginner sourdough bakers tend to have is just figuring out how to use up all that extra starter that kind of accumulates. And so I've heard of this thing called discard recipes. Do you have any favorites of those things to make when you don't feel like making bread? 
No, actually, I don't. Um, I I just I actually just because I actually keep my most a lot of people keep quite a large amount of starter, but I keep a very small amount because I'm doing it every couple of days. Um, I know, like Vanessa Kimball recommends, like to a two hundred gram block, which she she is a master, the master baker, so um, um, and that keeps a very good um, yeast culture going. But I, I actually just find I, I, I just keep a very small amount, and then um, each I have one pot, and each time I'm going to bake, when I set my leaven up, I throw a big cup of flour. I pour away half of what's in there. I throw a big cup of flour and a cup of water in it. And then when I'm making my dough up, I just pour the whole lot into it. And then I'm just left with what starters on the side of the pot. And it's had the fresh flour into it, so it's had a feed. And then the next day I give it a little feed and then I start the next leaven again. So I always keep a very small amount. The reason being that in the beginning when I was just nursing my starter and hadn't actually tried baking with it, I got through a ridiculous amount of flour feeding it. So I just found a way of keeping um, a very good, um, active uh, yeast culture going without too much, um, too much input of flour. Oh, that's really smart. And so for these days when there's not that much flour around, it might sort of help other people. But you just need to keep like just putting a little bit in. But I bake every other day. So, and if we're not having bread, I'm making pizza. So, oh, yummy. Okay. So, uh, as an artist, you've lived through a few other significant times of difficulty, whether economic or otherwise. Uh, what would you say is the role of art during these times, and how are they affected by these types of crises? Um, that's complex. Um, while we're all stuck at home, we, um, I think more people realize just how important the arts are. Um, they'd been sidelined for so long, but it's just so wonderful watching, um, you know, from really high culture, the Dutch national ballet practicing at home, um, people dance, dancing through the city to, uh, the other night listened to the most amazing live stream from you know a guy at my age um DJing from his back garden in Manchester with a field behind him and it was just the best DJ set I'd heard in a long time <laughs> um or Baxter Drury who we were due to go see play like this this month which was obviously cancelled did um, a live set from his uh from his living room with his son playing guitar it was it was really quite wonderful and touching um i think we see more and more how the arts uh, join us uh, link us all um and how um how important culture is uh the last recessions kind of decimated the mid-level um gallery system so um i think everyone's it's the art market for um the art market just totally changed artists found their own way of representing themselves instagram took on an importance and all the rest of it and in these times i just see my instagram feed is just flooded with artwork it's fantastic to see um people's drawings and everything so um 
There's an artist, Matthew Burroughs, set up a really nice thing in um, on Instagram, which is uh, the Artist Support Pledge, where um, artists post work that they sell for 200, no more than 200 pounds. For every thousand pounds they make, they buy an artwork from another artist. And it's quite wonderful. And it's just like all, you know, so a lot of people who would previously have been making big, big oil paintings or whatever are now making all these small, um, you know, lots of small watercolors and very beautiful things. And um, yeah, it, it's really nice. I'd like to, I'm curious how that will develop after, you know, after in, in our um, post corona world, if there is um, such a thing, post COVID. Um, because it's such a brilliant way of um, uh, creating your own marketplace and industry, and it's the works are at work sell for a really good price, and um, it's there's such an excitement about seeing all the different things people are doing. Wow, and such a, a sense of community, I think, also, which is something we really need. Yeah, and yeah, it's very curious. It's such a curious time. Um, it's going to be a long time before museums and galleries are open in the same same way. Um, we can't be having openings and um, large parties, gatherings, art fairs in the same way. Um, not for a while. So, um, but platform, you know, the platforms and everything just shift, and you still artwork needs to be. You can't replace the experience of seeing works um in the flesh but um um but certain work works very well viewing it on instagram or looking through so it's a different yeah whole new world and if nothing else it kind of whets our appetite for the future when we actually can see them in person again yeah i'm just devastated i didn't get to see the caravaggio show before um the lockdown happened I, that was the last one that I went to thinking with that thought in mind that if I don't go now, I won't have a chance. But I wonder if they'll keep it up quite some time. I mean, I bet they will keep it up after since they can't send the artworks back in the meantime or <laughs> anyway, I don't know. I hope so. Depends on the loan schedule, doesn't it? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it will be interesting. <laughs> Interesting to find out. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Rowena. And I'm sure I'll continue to contact you with random sourdough questions. <laughs> I'm in I'm intrigued about your your way of making bread with much more water. I'll have to find out more about that. Yeah, I will send you on some information. <laughs> so we will link to uh Rowena's fabulous masks in the show notes in case you want one and also uh, some of the other links that she talked about with regard to artists and um, those will be in the show notes so thank you very much Rowena thank you thank you for having me Sarah bye <laughs> that's it for today Thank you for listening, and if you have a story you'd like to share, visit us on the web at hiraithmagazine.com. That's H-I-R-A-E-T-H magazine.com. 
You can also connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or SoundCloud. The podcast is available to download on iTunes and other podcast platforms. If you like the Hiraith podcast, you can help by sharing it with your friends. And if your podcast platform allows, leaving us a rating. This episode featured music by Maidan and was recorded and produced by me, Sarah Bringhurst Familia, on the canals of Amsterdam.